Uh, my name's Nick, lead pastor here. If I haven't met you, um, love to meet you afterwards. Um, thanks for joining up with us. We are going to get into God's Word here. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 9. If you don't, you can raise a hand and we'll get a Bible to you. If you don't own one, that is um, our gift to you. And if you know someone who needs one, uh, that is our gift to them. Dude, it looks like Armageddon outside, does it not? Did you see the clouds like coming? It was crazy. It's starting to crack down on us right now. Um, we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 is what, what I'm going to read here. Pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whatever, or I'm sorry, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's pray. God, it just occurred to me, praying in the back there with Jerry, that You take such incredible delight. You you find such amazing joy in saving sinners. I was reminded of those parables from later in Luke's Gospel where just one after the other displays this reality for us. That when a sinner repents and finds salvation in you, it's it's like you've been reconciled with a long-lost child. And you come running with joy. When a sinner repents and finds salvation in you, it's like a shepherd who wandering up and down and through the hills, finds his lost sheep and throws them over his shoulder and brings them back with great joy into the fold. When a sinner repents and finds salvation in you, you see, it's like a woman who found the coins that she lost and She calls her friends together, they rejoice, and you say that all heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, that there's so much joy you take in saving sinners. And God, the thing that amazes me now in our text this morning is that you include us, the saved, now, in the saving. (laughs) You include us in the mission You let us participate 
in seeking and finding and going up and down hills and sweeping floors and running towards the lost. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for finding us. And thank you for giving us a mission so much bigger than ourselves. I pray today, God, that you would use my words. You would use our time together to equip us, encourage us, strengthen us for that mission. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so we've been in this text now for, uh, this is going to be our third week of what, I'm not quite sure. Uh, sometimes I get in, I'm not sure how I'm ever going to get out. Uh, but this is the third message now on this text. And hopefully by now, at least a few things have been made clear. Um, for one thing, we've seen that Jesus is ultimately raising up the church uh, to carry on his mission in the world. I mean, yes, I get that it's the 12 here, but we saw that it's the 72 in chapter 10. And then later on in the book of Acts, we see that the whole church is filled with the spirit sent out on his mission. So Jesus, chapter 9, first time he's including his disciples in his ministry, in his mission, because as we've said, it's also the first time he's going to disclose to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm not going to be here forever, but my spirit will fill you to keep going on. Therefore, we've come to understand, secondly, that every saint is sent. It's essentially the banner flying over this mini-series now. Every saint sent. That if you are a Christian, you are in fact uh, a missionary of God, a sent one. That you've been put on His mission by the Father. And the last time we made our way towards uh, what I was calling um, objectives. Namely, what are some of the things that, if we are, in fact, uh, Jesus' God's missionary, what are some of the things that we are being sent out to do? Our text gives us two in particular, uh, namely, to proclaim the kingdom, there in verse 2, and then to heal. To proclaim and to heal, last week we just... That we just drilled down on to proclaim, and we're going to spend another week on that here this morning. It's the idea of proclaiming the kingdom of God, the idea of preaching the gospel as it's put down in verse 6, or as we spoke of it last time, the idea of sharing, communicating, talking about, telling others the, capital T, story, capital S. Unfortunately, when all my messages interlock like this, there needs to be some review. Um, I say unfortunately, but the reality is probably none of you remember what I said last week anyways. You'd think it was all new. <laughs> but for those of you who, uh, who were not here last week, I'm going to do some review because the points and the things I'm going to do this week are built upon stuff I established last week. So, Bear with me for a moment. For those of you who weren't here, it's too fast. Uh, for those of you who were here, perhaps it's too long. But here we go anyways. There was an observation I made last time um, 
that really sets up the course for everything we're going to look at here when we consider evangelism or the subject of proclaiming or sharing the uh, story of the gospel with people. I'm going to restate this observation for you now because it's uh, reorienting my perspective on evangelism as a whole. Um, Upon reading the scriptures closely, it occurred to me that Jesus, his apostles, disciples, the early church, whatever we see through the scriptures, it occurred to me that, man, though they are always preaching, sharing the same gospel, they never preach it in exactly the same way. There's this variation in the way that they bring the one eternal message so that you can't flip through the uh, Gospels and find the same Gospel presentation twice. There's this sense where it is always in some way catered to, tailored to the very people they are trying to reach with that message, with the Gospel. I gave you uh, a few examples from Jesus' life. I'll just bullet point those for you again. Because these were uh, huge for me. You remember that when Jesus is talking with the thirsty woman at the well, how does he bring the gospel to her? Well, to her, he speaks of himself as the giver of living water. That's John 4.10. In other words, it's relevant to your thirst. What I have to bring. Or for the hungry crowds in the wilderness. John 6. How does Jesus speak of himself? I am the bread of life. What I have to bring is relevant for your hunger. More than you know. Or for the man born blind in John 9. Jesus speaks to him there as I am the light of the world. You so desperately want to see, I can bring sight more than you know. Or to those out in front of Lazarus' tomb in John 11, those mourning and weeping, their beloved brother, friend, son, wrapped in burial cloths, he turns to them and says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. I am relevant to what you are feeling right now regarding death and things not being the way that they ought to be. The gospel touches these moments right where you are. Same gospel. Never in the same way. It seems to me that in every case he's able to meet people in their longings, in their brokenness, in their own story, right where they're at. And then he backs them from there into the story, the one true story of the gospel. He meets them in things relevant to them and brings them into things more relevant than they could ever know to their not just life in this moment, but eternity. Amazing. And so the 
critical question for us then is, well, okay, if in fact Jesus is this way and ministers the gospel, proclaims his proclamation of the kingdom looks this way, and we are now uh, sent by him to continue his mission in the world by his spirit, does that not mean that our proclamation ought to look something like this as well. That we ought to be growing in our ability to tailor, contextualize, bring the one true message in countless different ways to countless different people in countless different situations. So how do we grow in this? Because I think obviously the answer to my question is yes. We want to learn to do this. We want to show people how the gospel is relevant to everything, even more than they know. How do we grow in this? I gave us three things that I think we need to know. We really looked at the first and only part of the second last time. I'm going to fly through the first and uh, and dive deeper into the second and third this week. But those three things were, were these. First, we need to know the story. We need to know the story of the scriptures, the story of the gospel, the only true story that orients us in the world and makes sense of all the disparate facts of life and our experiences. We need to know that story. Secondly, we need to know how the story touches our own story. And then third, we need to know how these story and our own story touch their story or the story of those in the world, the unbelievers that we hope to reach with the gospel. So first, uh, let me just review how I outlined the story for us last time. Uh, we need to know the story, the story of the scriptures, the Gospel, And I said last time, hey, a helpful way in almost every gospel tract, every gospel presentation I know of uh, will break things down essentially into these four, you could say, chapters. And this will help orient you as you're even trying to consider, man, where do I begin with the gospel and the story, so to speak, that's presented in the Bible? Well, one of the helpful ways you could do it is, is this. Uh, four chapters. Chapter one, creation. In other words, God made everything and it was very good. Chapter 2, fall. In other words, man broke everything and brought in hell that's bad. Chapter 3, redemption. Jesus saved everything in his life, his death and resurrection. Chapter 4, consummation. In other words, Jesus is soon coming again and he will totally restore all things. Obviously, last time we, we spent much more on those points. I can't do that today, but I will remind you of this. I said we need to know this story by heart. The image I gave you is like a little dude sitting in his room, learning the guitar for the first time and doing his scales. 
right? Ding, 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 ding. Learning, it feels a little technical. It feels a little, uh, what am I doing here? Learning the scales. Why? So that when he, he goes out on the stage on a Friday night and he's got his friends with him, he's able to quote unquote contextualize the scale for the moment, the song at hand. He can play in the right key, the right note, highlight this, highlight that. He can, in other words, uh, uh, bring that, that one scale to bear in a, diff- in a number of different ways on the various songs they're going to play. And so we spend time knowing the story in our devotions. Go, man, what does this say about the story of God? And drawing that out, learning about it, meditating on it memorizing it, knowing it by heart, so that when we walk into this world and we meet different people and we see the stories that they're in, we have an idea of how we can, how they fit into the story and what we can highlight that might be relevant for them in that moment. You with me on that? Does that make sense? We want to be able, in other words... Uh, to speak of the gospel in such a way that the thirsty hear us talking of water, the hungry hear us talking of bread, the, the blind hear us talking of light, and the dead hear us talking of life. We want the gospel to be relevant, as relevant as it truly is to them in that moment. Now, I think we are going to start moving into some newer stuff here for those of you who were here last week. Secondly, therefore, I said we need to know how the story touches our own story. We need to know the story and then we need to know how it gets into our own lives. Uh, Interestingly, I think the first step Rather than just memorizing some gospel presentation and running out to uh, bring it to the lost, I think the first step is actually recognizing how the gospel is in fact relevant to me. Not just upon my conversion, not just, you know, someday later when I'm going to enter heaven, but Now, today, how is the gospel relevant? How is it water and bread and light and life for me in what I am facing right now? We should not expect that we can bring the gospel with relevance into the everyday stuff of another person's life. If we can't, in fact, do it for our own lives. Um. There's a book I highly recommend that you just, in fact, we usually keep a copy in the back there. You pick it up and you, you start reading it today uh, by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane entitled How People Change. Um, and in this book, they talk about at the very beginning uh, what they call this gospel gap. This gospel gap. And what they mean by that uh, is that essentially in our understanding of the gospel as Christians, as Christians, there is a massive gap. Let me flesh that out for you. We get that there are past realities to the gospel. Namely, that Jesus lived, died, rose again. He, he died for my sins, rose for my justification. I've been saved in him at some historical past point, converted, born again. Awesome. Past realities. And then, on the other hand, we get 
that the gospel has future realities to it. That because I've been saved, converted, born again, forgiven by Jesus, that day coming, the last day, when I stand before him to give account for my life, will go well. Because the blood of the Lamb is on me. Because He paid for my sins. My, what the, he took the penalty I deserve. I walk into paradise. So we get past, we get future, but we get lost in the middle. How does the gospel, in other words, come to bear right now in this room on what you are facing? On the stuff that keeps you up at night. It, does the gospel have anything to say there? Or is it just a past thing we look back to? A future thing we look forward to? But an utterly irrelevant thing in the moment. It's the gap that they are talking about. Now we would probably not say... I hope that the gospel is irrelevant to us in the present. But the fact remains, functionally, the way we live often betrays this sort of thing. So this requires thinking about your own heart and life. Why do we get anxious? What does our anxiety communicate? about our understanding of the gospel. Does it not communicate that God, God is not here for us? Now I know we wouldn't, you know, say that, but does our anxiety not communicate, man, I'm on my own here. I'm scared here. I'm like an orphan here. Sure, I know Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for me. Wonderful. But I feel like he's left me orphaned in the moment. It's going to be great on that day, but I'm alone now. And so anxiety plagues us. Because we don't get how the past and future gospel is also present. Very present help in time of need. Or what does our anger communicate? Our bitterness, our sharp tongue. What does that communicate? Does it not say that God is not fair with us? God is not going to protect us. Yeah, I get it that on the last day, he's going to make all things right. right? He's coming and he will make all things right. But he ain't coming soon enough for me. I'm going to make it right tonight. I'm going to use my tongue. I'm going to use passive aggression. I'm going to use my anger to, to do it. I will protect myself. I will get the vengeance I want to see. I'm not waiting around for God. We get the past, we get the future, we get lost in the present. What does our greed communicate? The fact that we just kind of want to amass more and we have such a hard time letting go of our stuff. Does it not communicate that God is not enough for us? Yeah, okay, we know, we know that 
um, treasure is laid up for us in heaven, that we're going to inherit the world. But quite honestly, that feels so distant uh, and it feels like he's left us with so little now that we just start grabbing a hold of everything we can. There's not much in the present for us. In other words, we believe that Jesus died for us and saved us at some point in the past. We believe that we will be with him in heaven at some point in the future. But we have no idea how the gospel connects in any meaningful sort of way with our day to day. We believe the story. But oftentimes we come to find we're not truly living in it. Does that make sense? There's a gap. There's a gap. Let me let Lane and and, and Paul Tripp here speak to you. It is in the here and now, they write, that many of us experience gospel blindness. People need to see that the gospel belongs in their workplace, their kitchen, their school, their bedroom, their backyard, and their van. They need to see the way the gospel makes a connection between what they are doing and what God is doing. They need to understand that their life stories are being lived out within God's larger story so that they can learn to live each day with a gospel mentality. It's wonderful. I wonder where the gap is for you. I wonder where the blindness is for you. Certainly I see plenty of it in my own life. But with regard to the subject matter at hand, namely evangelism, I would argue that such a gospel gap not only um, radically affects our own Christian lives, it also guts the very engine that should drive our evangelism. Um, With this gap in place, we will present to the world, in essence, a past and future uh, relevant gospel, but a gospel that is presently irrelevant to all that they currently care about and are facing. We will not know how to connect the story to the stuff that currently they really care about and are feeling deeply about the sorrows and the fears, the longings and the joys, the brokenness of their hearts, the deep needs of their souls. We will not know how to connect the gospel to them there because it's a past thing and it's a future thing, but we don't quite get how it's a present thing. And so it will gut the very engine that should drive our our evangelism, I think. We will talk about the gospel as if it's only relevant for the person's afterlife. But we will will fail to bring out the fact that actually the gospel offers to them abundant life here and now. That's the point of Jesus' use of language is to say, man, The things you are thirsty for, hungry for, longing for, right now, I bring in ways that meet you here and also carry on into eternity. Absolutely, afterlife is huge. But they don't, I'll get there, people don't care about the afterlife right now. 
It's not where they're at. So he always meets him there, Jesus does, and gets back into the story. Meet him in their story, back into the story. But if we got a gospel gap, we don't know how to do this. Let me um, give you an example of this kind of reduced gospel uh, um, that I am concerned will shape some of our evangelism. Uh, one popular evangelistic method I'm aware of um, actually encourages you to begin with this question. Do you know for sure? Now, you're walking up to an unbeliever here. You're walking up to someone who's not a Christian here. And this is the question that you lead in with. Do you know for sure that you are going to be with God in heaven? Do you know for sure that you are going to be with God in heaven? Now, certainly uh, God has used this method, I know. Tons. Certainly, uh, this question is well-intentioned. Certainly, I think at one point in our history, it was more relevant and more searching than it is today. But here's the fact of the matter, you guys. This question for uh, the secular, modern man in the Western world, this question about will you get into heaven is irrelevant to him right out of the gate. We lose him before we even start. Because modern man, picking up Darwinian evolution and that whole worldview, doesn't believe there is a heaven, and he certainly doesn't care about going there. I'm a bunch of molecules that formed into what I am now. And when my life is done, I hit the dirt. There's no touch point. There's no, uh, there's no electricity in that gospel presentation. It falls flat. It's not where he lives. Um, the Pew Research Center found, I was looking online uh, in their latest survey of San Francisco, Bay Area, uh, found that roughly, this was more than I thought, uh, 50% of the population believe in heaven. I said, wow, that's, that's better than I thought. Okay. And then you keep looking and you realize that, okay, also 50% roughly of the population would consider themselves Christian, whether Protestant or Catholic. And I think it's a safe assumption here that the 50% who believe in heaven are probably also largely the same 50% who are already uh, considering themselves Christians. And are you seeing the dilemma? Therefore, this question about getting into heaven only helps us reach the reached. The other people don't even believe heaven is real and don't care. About getting in. So because we have this, this gospel gap, you see, well, it's, it's, it, it is valuable for the future. I promise it is. You're going to need to know this. It seems like a joke to me. And if that's all the gospel is good for, well, then the gospel seems like a joke too. Now, don't mishear me. That is a very important question. And heaven is a very, very, heaven and hell are very impending realities for unbelievers. It's just not the pressing stuff on their heart. They're experiencing things like life in a fallen world. 
They they don't care about heaven and hell. They care about why my marriage is falling apart and why I'm struggling with anxiety and popping pills to cover it. They're, they're wondering why, you know, I, I, I keep going from man to man to man and no one ever fills me up. Or why, man, I, I keep shredding pounds, but I still feel fat. Or they're wondering, <laughs> that's the stuff that they're in. Life in a fallen world. Can the gospel touch them there? Yes, it can. You meet them in their story and back them in to the story. And it just gets better and better. You see you touch them in the stuff that, man, they're... They're really feeling. They're really facing. I think so much of our evangelism is uh, often an attempt to answer questions that people aren't asking. To scratch itches that are... to what? I guess, yeah, scratch where people aren't itching. But the thing about it is Jesus never does this. He never says, I know you don't care, but you should. Instead, he meets them in the things that they care about. And he shows them how there's so much more to it than they even realized. And how the gospel, whatever the question is, is the answer. We want to grow skilled in that. We desperately need to close the gap. Um, Truly, the gospel speaks with profound relevance into the whole spectrum of human experience. Um, It has something to say to us in our fears, in our longings, in our sorrows, and in our joys. Um, It is relevant in our friendships, in our families, in our work, in our play, in our wins, in our losses, in our celebrations, in our sufferings, in our life, and in our death. Every aspect, the whole spectrum of the human experience, the gospel, can speak meaningfully into. The story can touch our stories at every point along the way. Ben Connolly and and Bob Roberts Jr. put it this way in their book, A Field Guide for Everyday Mission. The gospel is a past event, both historically and personally for every Christian. It does give a future hope for personal reconciliation and the renewal of all things, but it also impacts every moment of our present lives. The gospel means something to everyone, every day, for every situation, whether they know it or not. And it's our joy to start to close this gap for ourselves, our our, our community as the saints, and then as we walk out into the world, for others and show them how the gospel speaks their language to and make sense of the stuff they deal with in ways that they couldn't put together without it. Can I um, encourage you to start making a regular habit of pausing throughout your day-to-day You week in, you week out. The stuff that's going on. Pause. Take inventory of your own heart. What it is that you feel like you're facing. What it is that you feel like you're feeling. What it is that you're doing. And just reflect. How does the gospel, how does the story touch this moment? How would I go from my story here and back into the story? What does it look like to work 
within the story? Why am I feeling this anxiety? And how does the gospel speak to that? How does Jesus meet me in that? What does it look like to steward money to all these things? Just stop for a moment. The gospel ought to be at the center of our lives. You know, it's it's amazing. I didn't have this in my notes, but Jerry gave me too much time. So that's always a dangerous thing. Um, This is awesome. I'm reading through the book of Ezra in my devotions. And you know, that's when they are finally released from exile. They come back to the promised land. And the first thing they want to do, right, is rebuild the temple. But even, even kind of before that, what's the very first thing that they establish? The altar. The altar. Why? Because the gospel is the center of the cosmos and our lives. It touches every point. And so I want us to grow skilled in making those connections, seeing that. Let me just give you one example from my last week. Um, some of you heard the announcement last uh, week that, you know, we as a church, uh, you know, it's don't hear me blow this out of proportion. We as a church are, you know, financially behind for the year. And I know that this is common for um for churches and ministries and things, and I also know that we have plenty in savings and all that, but it also is hard to face as a lead pastor of the church. Oh. Okay, well, whoops, uh-oh. And what happens in that moment? So 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 here I am emailing Ian about something, texting Jerry about something, whatever it is, and and, and I, I pause. What does it look like to deal with financial stress within the story? What does it look like to take this moment that's probably not unfamiliar to all of you as you balance your budgets and look and go, oh gosh, honey, it looks like ramen again tonight. And you're stressing, you're worried. What does it look like to take that moment and back into the story? Because here's what you could feel. Here's what, you know, I could be tempted to feel. Oh God, where are you? Are you going to provide? Am I failing? Am I doing something wrong? Have you left me alone? These are all the sorts of things that could be going on if I were to remove myself from the story and just kind of live in that alone. But when I back that into the story, everything changes. When I close the gap, everything changes. Suddenly God starts to minister. I'm just thinking creation, fall, redemption, consummation for a moment. There's so much more you could do, but... I mean, think about it. God could say, I created you for my glory. And you wouldn't have it. You wanted your own way. You wanted your own thing. And so work, yeah, you better believe it. It's going to be hard, right? It's tough. <laughs> but let me tell you something. I didn't give you the wrath you deserve, did I? No, I gave you my son. I didn't give you my anger. I gave you my most beloved treasure. My only beloved son. That's what I gave you when you were my enemy, when you wanted nothing to do with me. That's the overflowing love 
that your father has. And now, Romans 8, 32, right? If I did not withhold my only son from you, Nick, how will I not also freely with him give you all things? Everything that you need. It might not be in the way that you want or you dream or you think, but you better believe your Father in heaven is actively parenting, caring for, providing for His children. My Spirit's there. Christ is in you. You're in the story, man. I will provide for you now and in ways you could not even imagine consummation of the ages. Let's just walk through this together. Now suddenly, what became a I'm an orphan, I'm alone, oh my gosh moment, when you back that into the story, because wow, what could have been anxiety is now ruled by the peace of God. We just closed the gap. This is the stuff that we get to do every day. This is the stuff that we want to grow skilled at all the time so that we can start to bring the the gospel uh, with relevance to the real stuff other people are facing. Show them that you're not going to find, you're not going to find security any other way. I mean, you think, let me just start to blur this into point number three now. You think that what I dealt with there isn't relevant? To the financially pressed population of Silicon Valley who just watched their rent skyrocket or the prices of food or whatever it is. It's insane, right? People are leaving because they can't handle it. Or I hear about what's going on at people's jobs. And how, man, it's like you're constantly on the chopping block. They're reorging again, budget cuts again. I don't know what's going to happen. You think that this kind of God, this moment isn't relevant. To the the unbelievers in your life. Oh, it is. It is. They are trying to find financial peace. They know that they're unstable. They know that work is hard. They know that life is not so fun. And all this work and stuff, it's difficult. And they feel alone. And they're trying to figure it out. Well, maybe if I get that stock portfolio, or maybe if we do that, or we downsize this, and they're looking for all these ways to save, and we get the joy, the privilege of coming in and saying, man, listen, I I know what that feels like. And I also know a God who meets us in it. Wants to care for you, wants to provide for you. You can't handle this burden. And this is a fallen world. You feel that? I know you might think you have a plan, but how's that? How have all your other plans worked out? Not so well, right? You just lead them to Jesus. Show how the gospel is relevant to the stuff that they're really facing. One true gospel, countless ways. So. Clearly now we've started to kind of shift towards that third point. Uh, we need to know how the story and our own story touch their story. Um, as we become increasingly aware of how the gospel uh, uh, meets us, 
in our needs and joys and all the stuff that's going on. As we become increasingly aware of that, I think we also will grow increasingly confident that we can bring this gospel to bear on anything that even a non-Christian is facing. Because remember, remember, remember the two presuppositions from last week. They are living in God's world. And they are made in God's image. So they're feeling this stuff. They just don't have words for it. And we get to bring the gospel to bear there. I wanted to end by uh, reading probably actually the, the longest quote I've ever read. There's a whole page in my notes. Um, but I thought it was so good. I thought it was so good. Because at this point, because we're dealing with something that I'm hoping is flexible and like taking the scale, so to speak, and riffing on it, I, all I can do is really show you different riffs, so to speak, show you how jazz is played out there, how you take the one story and get in. And there are countless ways to do this. I wanted to show you from the life of a guy by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, he knows this stuff way better than I do, lives it uh, way Way more than I do. I, I wanted to, us to learn from him. I, I, I recently bought, um, just, it just came last, yesterday, his book, Gospel Fluency. On the hunch that, uh, what I was trying to lay out here, uh, for you these past few weeks and where we'll go, uh, next week and things, I, I had a hunch that it, it, it was probably something along the lines of what he's developed. And, uh, as I got it, many, as I, as I got and I thumbed through the pages, I was like, no, it's almost the same outline. It's so wonderful, so beautiful. We'll probably use his stuff for curriculum in our small groups or maybe training or uh, stuff like that. It's wonderful, but he's got this book, Gospel Fluency. I encourage you to check it out. I might even give it away to some lucky uh, member of this church next week. Um, but at the end uh, of, of his book, I, I was looking at some of the ways he goes about sharing. And he records this story that I feel like embodies everything I've been trying to get across. So I just want you to kick back for a moment and listen. Listen and and observe and and watch how he meets this woman in her story and then brings her back into the story. This really is where we'll, we'll close. Whenever I am engaging in a conversation with someone, I ask the Holy Spirit to help me. He is called the helper, after all. Help me slow down, I pray. Help me to trust you are working here in the silence. Help me to listen well to them and to you. I ask him to give me ears to hear what the real issues are and then provide me with wisdom as to how to share the truths of Jesus in such a way that they will be good news to the other person. Did you hear that? He says, I want them to hear good news. So often we bring a gospel that doesn't seem like good news to them. He says, I want to hear what the longings and the brokenness and the stuff is for them so that when I bring it, it just sounds good to them. Like it really is. It goes on. Recently on a plane, I happened to sit next to a woman who was very troubled. I didn't know this at first because she looked and seemed pleasant in her greeting. I asked the woman, so are you leaving home or headed home? She replied, well, both, I guess. I live in Seattle, but I'm flying to the place that was supposed to be my new home. My husband and boys are there now. It's a little complicated. We couldn't all move at the same time because I had to stay back to work for a while longer in Seattle. However, now we're getting a divorce, so I will be staying in Seattle. I'm just going to see my sons and sign divorce papers and head back home. 
I asked what had happened and she continued to open up. I continued to pray and listen to both her and the spirit. The story just poured out of her mouth. The dam had been ready to burst for some time. I found that when you make space for others and they really believe you care, they're eager to open up and pour out their hearts. I'm increasingly convinced that people can sense something is different about us, so they are often more prone to share when they experience the Spirit's presence and His fruit in our lives. The woman on the plane went on to describe how she had had an affair and how her husband in his anger had done everything he could to destroy her image on Facebook, turning all their friends against her. He had succeeded in turning her sons against her as well. She was terribly embarrassed, broken, and demoralized. I listened for quite some time and it became clear to me that she was sorry for what she had done and regretted the pain and shame it had brought on her and her family. Not only did she feel bad, but she was being crushed by the weight of it all. The guilt and the shame were too much to bear. And she was deeply burdened by her husband's anger and her son's pain. Then he pauses, and these are very important words. Listen for the longing, uh, Vanderstelt says. Listen for the pain. Listen for the need for Jesus. She wanted to make things right. She wanted forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation. Jesus had good news for her. And he goes on. At one point she stopped and said, You sure are nice. You've been listening to me go on and on about my life, and I've hardly asked you about yours. You're just so easy to talk to. Who are you? She seemed surprised that a stranger would listen and show he cared. I then explained to her who I was and, most importantly, who I knew. I let her know that I know and love Jesus and that Jesus cared and was listening to her as well. I shared with the woman that she was feeling shame and guilt because of her sin and her subsequent attempts to deal with it. I shared with her the story. See, he's backing into the story now. I shared with her the story of Adam and Eve creation and how they tried to deal with their sin. I continued to show her how it led them to blame each other and brought destruction in their relationships. Fall. You live in a fallen world. You and your husband both experientially know the pain of sin, I said. And because sin is ultimately a violation against God, the giver of life and his ways which protect and promote life, You're both looking for someone to pay the penalty for that violation. The Bible calls this payment atonement. We all know someone should pay for sin. So when we sin or are sinned against, we look for someone or something to atone for it. If we look to ourselves, we self-loathe and self-hate, which is shame and guilt having its way in us. If we look to blame others and make them pay, we become bitter and hate them. In either case, the sin never really is dealt with. It doesn't go away. Instead, it produces more destruction. In many cases, we try to earn our own atonement by trying to be better, work harder, or promise never to do it again. But that leads to other forms of destruction, such as perfectionism, workaholism, pride, or devastation and depression when we fail. What you need is getting to redemption. I continued, is one who can truly atone for your sin. You need someone who can handle the weight of sin, forgive you of your sin, and set you free from it, so that it no longer defines you. You need Jesus. I then went on to describe how Jesus willingly went to the cross to take her sin on himself, 
I shared how he was willing to be publicly shamed for her so that she not only could be forgiven, but also clothed in his righteousness and freed from guilt and shame. You will never be able to do enough to remove your guilt and cover your shame through your own efforts, I said. Only Jesus can do that for you. Your husband hates you because he's also looking for atonement for your sin. That makes sense if he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't have another place to go to. Until he meets Jesus, he will continue to expect you to pay for what you've done. And if you don't go to Jesus for forgiveness, you will keep carrying both the weight of your sin and your husband's hatred of you for it. Let Jesus take the guilt and the shame and ask him to carry the weight of your husband's hatred towards you. You can't handle it, but Jesus can and did at the cross. He died to remove it and to heal you of its scars. We went on and on about how the gospel brings forgiveness, healing, hope, and even love for those we've hurt or been hurt by. At the end, she said, I feel like I got a free counseling session with God just now. I'm convinced he set up our seating arrangement for this flight. I agreed. He does that kind of thing. He wants to do that through you now speaking to us as well. If you will set aside yourself, your assumptions and your need to be heard or be right and just listen, listen to the people God has put into your life. Listen to what the spirit has to say. Then you will know how to speak the gospel to the deep longings of people's souls. Many are going to other wells to find water. Let's be willing to slow down in order to lovingly show them how Jesus is standing ready to uniquely satisfy their thirst. I hope I didn't lose you there. This will be online if you want to read it again. But the essence is everything we've been talking about. You know the story. You know it by heart. It's touched you. And you can see how it gets into another person's life. If I could close in this way, let me... Put it like this, however God leads us to go out from here and proclaim, to proclaim is the missionary objective we've been focusing on. However God leads us to go out from here and proclaim, whether it's preaching on the street corner, or it's approaching strangers, or it's talking with old friends, it's one thing that I I hope we take away, and that is, man, we want to have a listening ear. We want to have authentic curiosity and and, and genuine care and compassion for the people we are talking to. So that we might just, by the Spirit's help, discern their thirsts, their hungers, their blindness, their deaths, the things that they are troubled by and bring the gospel to bear there. So that we might always be preaching that one same gospel, but never in quite the same way. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ways you do this with us. Gosh, I know the way I was saved. I know the way you got a hold of me. And it was right in the midst of my trials. Right in the midst of the stuff I was feeling and facing and struggling with. You did this for me. You showed me how you could put my story back together. You could put my body back together. You could be the one who would help the anxieties and the fears and the the trials I was in. 
God, you might be even doing that for some in this room. We don't know you. I, I don't know. You might be coming near. You might be pressing in and showing him, man, there's only one true story. Stop buying the stories the world tells us, the, the stories we tell ourselves. Let's listen to what God has to say and walk in that. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending the Spirit. Thank you for the gospel at the center of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.